practice is the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames. Brought to you by Special Needs Family Resources, LLC. For the next hour, we'll be discussing the particular challenges and real-life solutions for families with special needs. If you found us, please know that you are not alone. To find out more, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, it's your host, Julie Ames, on AM860, The Answer. Thanks for listening today to the Special Needs Family Hour. I'm Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. Our show is dedicated to helping those parents and caregivers who are caring for special people. Our show will always begin with a few minutes of inspiration. Our goal is to help and inspire those parents and caregivers who are caring for special people. The theme of the show is the essay, Welcome to Holland. Holland is a code word for living life with those with disabilities. This week in Holland, we hit a few bumps in the road. I have a common cold. Of course, when my Maria, my daughter, my oldest daughter Maria, gets a cold, it aggravates her asthma and heightens her normal anxiety level. So I had Maria at home with me yesterday, and it was time for our little peekapoo ladies annual checkup. Everything went well at the vet until when the vet was giving lady her annual vaccinations. Instead of giving lady a shot, she gave lady a liquid vaccination in her nose. And so I had to hold my little dog, and she put the vaccine in her nose. And then after this, Lady got sick. She vomited twice, and Maria started feeling really bad. I think her asthma was acting up because we were near the cat section of the veterinarian. So I got my sick dog and my sick child. I put them in the lobby together, only to find out that my credit card was rejected. So I had the credit card company. I, I had the veterinarian or the receptionist put it through again and it was rejected again and they didn't accept checks I said well why don't you call my husband he'll give you his credit card and she said oh no we can't do that we have to fax the information so I called the credit card company and I said you know and I have great credit I wasn't upset I would say I was a little stressed I said you know I've got a sick kid I have a dog that just vomited twice and I have another kid I have to pick up in 15 minutes why isn't my card going through it turns out it wasn't activated And my card, when I got it, didn't have the sticker. So just because your husband activates his doesn't mean yours is activated. So that was my foray into Holland. Now, for the next segment, I want to read a poem called Before I Was a Mom. And today we're going to be discussing individual education plans, and it can be very emotional. And this poem really um, encompasses all the emotions of being a mom. The author is unknown. Before I was a mom, I made and ate hot meals. I had unstained clothing. I had quiet conversations on the phone. Before I was a mom, I slept as late as I wanted and never worried about how late I got into bed. I brushed my hair and my teeth every day. Before I was a mom, I cleaned my house each day. I never tripped over toys or forgot words of lullabies. Before I was a mom, I didn't worry whether or not my plants were poisonous. I never thought about immunizations. Before I was a mom, I had never been puked on, pooped on, spit on, chewed on, peed on, or pinched by tiny fingers. Before I was a mom, I had complete control of my thoughts, my body, and my mind. I slept all night. Before I was a mom, I never held down the screaming child so that doctors could do tests or give shots. I never looked into teary eyes and cried. I never got gloriously happy over a simple grin. I never sat up late hours at night watching a baby sleep. Before I was a mom, I never held a sleeping baby just because I didn't want to put it down. I never felt my heart break into a million pieces when I couldn't stop the hurt. I never knew that something so small could affect my life so much. 
I never knew that I could love someone so much. I never knew I would love being a mom. Before I was a mom, I didn't know the feeling of having my heart outside my body. I didn't know how special it could feel to feed a hungry baby. I didn't know that bond between a mother and her child. I didn't know that something so small could make me feel so important. Before I was a mom, I had never gotten up in the middle of the night every ten minutes to make sure all was okay. I had never known the warmth, the joy, the love, the heartache, the wonder, or the satisfaction of being a mom. I didn't know I was capable of feeling so much before I was a mom. That's a wonderful poem, and it's leading into our next section. So please join us on the other side. Today we will have a representative from Florida Diagnostics and Learning Resources Systems and a parent advocate to discuss the individual education plan. Our goal is to provide information and guidance for parents navigating the individual education plan process. Are you struggling with a special needs loved one in your life? Remember, you are not alone. Find out more at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Our program will continue in just a moment. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with me, Julie Ames. Thank you for being here with us today. I, I have a little bit of a cold, so if I sound funny, I know I sound funny to myself, so if, if I sound awkward to you, that that's why, and it's also why I'm a little bit out of breath here. I have two guests with me. Would you guys please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Denise Provenzano. I'm a human resource development specialist with Florida Diagnostic and Learning Resources System. Hi, I'm Claudia Roberts. I'm a parent advocate. And Claudia, how, could you please tell our audience what a parent advocate is? The purpose of a parent advocate is to support parents at IEP meetings and just to help them feel comfortable, to help them advocate for their child, to help them kind of um, deliver to the team their views of what they think their child needs. Um, Parent participation is a big part of IDEA, and my goal is just to make them feel comfortable and to be able to kind of get past some of the acronyms in special education and kind of understand what's going on, maybe translate for them a little bit too. Yes, because it is a whole new vocabulary. My first IEPs, um, well, it took me a few years. I experienced a lot of emotional trauma with my first IEPs. And the reason why is because Maria and Christina were diagnosed as having a genetic anomaly when they were six and a half and four and a half. So they were almost actually seven and five when I realized they had a problem. I was expecting baby number four and was told that I could have even a more severely disabled child than the older two I had. So I'm expecting this baby at my first IEP for Christina. And I miscarried with this baby by the second IEP. And then the follow-up IEP, I'm going to that six-week checkup after my DNC at the hospital. So for the longest time, besides being at the IEP and dealing with all these things and hearing that my children are having challenges, I have all these other things going on. So to me, the IEP was major emotional trauma. So we're going to discuss IEP intellectually, and we're going to also try and include the parent side of it and the child side of it. So to Denise, could you please explain to our audience what is an IEP? Well, let's start off with IEP as an acronym, and it stands for an Individual Educational Plan. It is a written description of the special education and related services needed by a student. 
and the goal of this plan is to give the student access to the general education curriculum and provide the student with opportunities to acquire grade level content. Now, who qualifies for an IEP? Good question. Children between the ages of 3 and 21 who meet the eligibility criteria from our state of Florida in one of the 13 qualifying disabilities and who require special education services because of their disability can qualify for services under IDEA. And to be eligible, what exactly must a student do? To be eligible, a student must have a disability that adversely affects her or his educational performance and must need special education in order to receive an appropriate education. In a nutshell, your child has has to have a qualifying disability which affects his or her academic performance. Well, now, I was reading that there are 13 disabilities that IDEA, which is the Individual Disabilities Education Act, the federal law, that says may qualify a child for special education. What are those 13 areas? You are absolutely correct, Julie. There are 13 categories of special education as defined in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, And in order to qualify for special education, the IEP team must determine that a child has one of the following, autism, blindness, deafness, emotional or behavioral disturbance, hearing impairment, intellectual disability, multiple disabilities, orthopedic impairment, other health impairment, specific learning disability, speech or language impairment, traumatic brain injury, or visual impairment. Yes, Claudia. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I did. Because for parents, I want them to understand that 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 those criteria are state criteria. Because your student has a specific diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean that they meet criteria. What the districts will do is if there is a suspicion of a disability, then they will start the evaluation process. That can be started in a number of ways, one of which is a parent request. Um, the district will then do an evaluation. They have a time period to get that done. After the evaluation is completed, uh, a group of people, including the parents, meet to determine whether or not the student is eligible. At that meeting, parents can also bring in private evaluations or any other information they want considered. And that decision is made by a, by a group of people, some, some district specialists, district personnel, and again, the parents are part of that determination. Yes. Now, what does an IEP contain? A compliant IEP should have six essential components, and the first one is the present level of performance. The IEP would also include goals and objectives, supplementary aids and services, instructional and testing accommodations, special education services, and, of course, the least restrictive environment information as well. Now, explain that to the audience that may not understand what you mean by least restrictive environment. The least restrictive environment um, deals with that all students must be educated in the least restrictive environment or the LRE, as we often say, using our acronyms. The IEP team will consider what the least restrictive environment factors and options are only after the IEP team has developed goals and objectives. And the LRE relates to... um, relates only to the setting where a student with a disability receives special education services and how much time is spent in those settings. But let's also keep in mind that the first place we should always look is in the general education classroom. Yes, I know for my girls, they would be in the regular class, and then for their arts and for PE, they would be the regular kids. So those were the least restrictive environments for them. 
Absolutely, and that's where the IEP team needs to get together and um, make those decisions as to what is keeping the child first, focus on the child, and what works best in serving and meeting the student's needs. Now, is this the area where you talk about modifications as far as um, testing and what the child needs, or will we get into that later? Well, if you want to go into the six different steps to the IEP and okay. give a little detail in each of those areas, okay. we would get into that in all one right, of the other right, areas. Let's do that. Did you have any questions? No, I was just going to make the point, too, that I think parents don't often, um, that what helps parents is that once, you know, when you meet an eligibility criteria, say a student has autism and they're found eligible under the autism eligibility, when that individual IEP is developed, that Denise is going to talk about some more, that IEP is based on the child, not on the disability. It is, an, and that's where the individualized an IEP comes from. Once you get through what I call kind of that door of eligibility, then we talk about the specific student and the needs of that student. And you know, it, it can vary. Um, you guys have heard, and I heard it again today earlier, um, if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism, you know. And so, again, that plan will be based on the individual needs of that particular student, not on the disability category. Absolutely. It's not the label. ESC is all about the service and not the label. Yes. Oh, speaking about labels, I know that was my huge fear when it came to my daughters is people would ask me if I knew what what the challenge was, and I did not technically know because they don't have a syndrome. It's not like I can say they have Down syndrome. They had a genetic anomaly, and I didn't want to discuss the genetic anomaly because, well, they, they inherited it from me. I didn't want to discuss it. I didn't want them to be labeled. I wanted my family to treat them like normal kids, and I wanted the school to treat them like normal kids, and I didn't Finally, it was one of the IEP meetings I finally said, well, they do have a genetic anomaly, and it was at Easter time. So I told my family after Easter, my whole family, because I didn't want to get into it. But explain labeling and how it is to your advantage. Well, when we talk about labeling, you can talk about the medical diagnosis that a doctor can provide, um, in particular, say, a neurologist with autism or your pediatrician. But it's not necessarily the label. Um, within the state of Florida, when we talked about these 13 different category areas of eligibility, to receive services through IDEA, the student must be eligible in the state for in one of these category areas. And then from there is where the individual educational plan is developed. That plan, as I shared a few minutes ago, when developed by a team and a team of people that really know the student who can provide information based on data um, and, and where the child is currently functioning, when you follow the flow of the IEP process, you should be able to develop a plan that is going to meet the unique needs of that student. Yes. But but also I think labeling it becomes kind of a personal matter. I mean, first of all, I do want to say that that, that the IEP, the eligibility document, the um, IEP itself is a confidential document. So that is only really shared with on a need-to-know basis with the people that need to implement that plan. So if confidentiality is an issue, I would say, you know, you can go forward kind of assured that that's a confidential document. Um on top of that, I think, you know, how much people want to share about their own disability is a is a journey for families. Yes. And for some families, you know, they want to share a lot. And, and I think it's important at some point to teach the child uh, about their disability and then let them maybe share what they want to share. You know, and again, some people want to share everything and some people don't. Correct. And you can do that. Absolutely. It, yes, it definitely is a journey. Now, what should we discuss next, Denise? Should we go into present level performance? If you'd like. The present level of performance is really the foundation on which the IEP is built. 
and the present level should be based upon current and relevant information as well as data collected from a variety of sources. Also included in that present level is the most recent um, results of either state or district or transition assessments or recent evaluations or reevaluations. Also, the present level should describe the student's involvement and their access to the general curriculum. It should contain information regarding the, st- the student's strengths and their weaknesses. It should include a review of a previous, um, previous IEP goals and objectives. That is, if the student was already uh, a student with a disability identified yes. with an IEP. Otherwise, if it was an eligibility, like you were saying, it, we wouldn't have that information. Um, and it should also reflect the areas of current information with regards to curriculum and learning, social-emotional domain, independent functioning, health, and communication. So it looks at the whole child um, to provide this information. Also should include the information and concerns that the parents share because the parents play a very important role in the IEP process. We are all there for that child. So the information that the parent can provide and share with us, the concerns that they have can then become the concerns of the team in working to assist and provide service to this student. Another thing that could be added is any self-determination or self-advocacy information, and that typically occurs with students that are older for them to be able to either self-disclose or to identify what accommodations or assistance they may require um, for them to be successful. For instance, like more time on a test or... Absolutely, absolutely. And then for goals and objectives? Well, you must have at least a minimum of one goal in an IEP, There is nothing that states how many goals you have to have, but let's keep in mind that the goals are the driving force of the student's educational program. And what could you reasonably reasonably expect the student to learn in one year's time? Since IEPs are written for one year, you don't want to, let's use this um, uh, example, if the child is crawling, you don't want them to just start running a marathon. Yes. You want them to go through the stages. So we look at what we would like to expect the student to learn or accomplish in one year's time. It should be designed to meet the needs of the student and what that what will help them to enable them to progress um, forward based on their present level of performance. So we have the information knowing where they are and, of course, where we want them to go. Goals should also be written in the using the SMART format. And what I mean by that is that the goals should be specific and descriptive so that everybody is clear what exactly we want the student to do. It should be measurable because we, if the present level tells us where the student is currently functioning, then within our goal, we need to be able to state where we want them to be. The goal should also be attainable because since the goal is written for one year, you wouldn't want to write an unrealistic goal that would not be uh, possibly obtainable based on the student's progress and where they're functioning, etc. And the R in SMART goes for realistic and relevant because sometimes, you know, we want to reach for the stars and I'm right there with you. I wanted to reach for my stars, for my children, for myself, but we have to be realistic sometimes and pick those stars that really are going to be relevant in the success of the student. And lastly, the T in SMART is time-limited for one year. We also want that goal to be to pass the stranger test so that any qualified educator can pick up that IEP, 
which would be their responsibility to implement and to be able to document the student's performance, but that it is clear to everyone. And goals should be reviewed at least quarterly, and we typically do this in Hillsborough County through our um, ESE progress reports, but parents and the whole team need to be kept abreast of goals. If goals aren't working, we just don't keep working on the same old goals. I have a great example. My daughter, Christina, wasn't speaking really well, and she needed to have a mini-mo. A mini-mo is a machine that she, if she needed to go to the bathroom, she'd raise her hand, and the machine would say may I please go to the bathroom? And it had her classmates' names programmed into it. But guess what? Over the summer, she had an explosion as far as language, and it was such that everyone agreed on the IEP team that she should stop, um, that she didn't need the mini and it was a hindrance. So that's an example of meeting and changing a goal. Absolutely. To look to see if the student is progressing, then we can either raise the goal, IEP team, come back together, or possibly, if they're not meeting with success, then what can we put in place so that we can meet success? This is Julie Ames of the Special Needs Family Hour. Please join me on the other side when we come back to discussing the individual education plan. To find out more or to contact Julie Ames, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with me, Julie Ames. My email is julie at specialneedsfamilyhour. You can also access our website, specialneedsfamilyhour.com. And also, don't forget to like us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is the Special Needs Family Hour. I am here discussing the individual education plan. We're currently going over how to set goals for your child. And I'm here with Denise Provenzano of Fiddlers and Claudia Roberts, a parent advocate. Um, Let's continue with setting goals, Denise. Okay. Um, When we talk about well-written goals, a well-written goal should have three main components. And the first one is the behavior. That is what we want the student to achieve. The behavior must always be observable as well as measurable and always expressed with a verb. And it is what we want the student to do. Another component of a well-written goal is the condition. And what we mean by condition is how or in what manner will this be accomplished? It should describe the amount of support required for the mastery of the goal, such as the student will do something independently or with no more than one verbal prompt or using a specific tool like a daily planner or a visual schedule or the size of the group in which this um, is to be accomplished. And then lastly, the third component deals with the criterion, and that specifies the level of proficiency. So not only do we know what we want the student to do, what we need to put in place as the condition, but then the criteria that tells us and should answer two questions. How well should the student um, or what? how well does the student need to um, complete the task and over what period of time? So those are the three main components to a well-written goal. Great. Now, what's the next thing we should discuss, Denise, that would help our audience here? Um, when it talks about special education services, did you want to expound on that? 
Um, well, the special education services are those the ugh, that was a mouthful <laughs> um, are the specially designed instruction or the unique set of supports provided to the individual student based on his or her learning needs. So what we want the student to do is we want to be able to remove those barriers that often result from students' disability. We want to keep in mind, like we had spoke earlier, that program labels do not describe the services that the individual student requires. So lastly, we want to make sure that um, we address the location and the frequency in this area of the IEP that talks about where will the service occur and how often will that service occur. Okay. Now, when it comes to testing your child, um, instruction and testing accommodations, Okay. How? what kind of accommodations can you give a child? Well, accommodations, oftentimes we say they level the playing field, and they should not or do not reduce the learning expectations. So the expectations are still there. However, rather they provide access by enabling the student to participate more fully in instruction and assessment and to better demonstrate their knowledge of skills. We have to keep in mind that if accommodations are needed, that they should become a part of the daily routine and not just used at the time of testing. Also, if an IEP team determines that accommodations for a student that are not allowable on exams, such as the FSA or other district assessments, are required or necessary, then keep in mind that parent permission is required for the teacher to be able to use those accommodations within the classroom on a daily basis. Again, the need for accommodations should always be supported by data. Yes, I would love this and I would love that, but do I really need it? Remember, we don't want to hamper. Um, we want to help and provide independence. Yes. Can I? I, if I can, I yes, would add the other thing that's really important for me is that accommodations have to be taught and encouraged, and, and that's to somewhat to some extent a matter of maturity so when you think about we have a young child that maybe won't does or doesn't feel comfortable wearing their glasses we encourage them and try to demonstrate how much better they see the same thing with accommodations when kids are in elementary or students are in elementary getting them to use those accommodations and see the benefit and then having them participate in their meeting as they get older and determine which accommodations really are beneficial to them because also accommodations can be used for students as they go into college there are no IEPs in college but there are there can be accommodations and so so the goal for me often is to get students on board with what works for them so that as they become more independent they can access those accommodations and really utilize them that's a great point Claudia absolutely now who produces an IEP well according to the federal law IDEA 2004 the IEP team Includes, first and foremost, the parents of a child with a disability and not less than one regular education teacher of such child, not less than one special education teacher, or where appropriate, not less than one special education provider of such child, a representative of the local education agency, which is what we say in Hillsborough County often, the LEA rep, which is a neutral person at the meeting who can speak to um, policies, etc. An individual who can interpret the instructional implications of evaluation results, which oftentimes may be the case manager or the teacher um, as well. They can wear two hats for that um, person. And also at the discretion of the parent or agency or other individuals may be invited to participate in the IEP who have knowledge or special expertise regarding the child, including related services personnel, as appropriate, 
And lastly, whenever appropriate, the child with a disability. Once students, you know, reach the age of um, uh, in fifth grade, moving on to middle school and high yes. school, those students should be a part of that IEP team. Yes. I, I heard a great story, and I don't know if this is the right place to interject that story, but it was about a boy who wanted to work at a hospital. And he, what it, he wasn't, he did not have the intellectual capacity to be a doctor. And what he really wanted was to wear a white coat and work at the hospital. So, I believe I shared that story. That with was you, you. okay, was at, the training. at the training. Yay. Absolutely. And that did occur. Um, one of our ESC supervisors in our district was a transition specialist at the time. And working with this student, he did. He said uh, that he wanted to be a doctor. Was it realistic that a child with intellectual disabilities become a doctor? Probably not. Right. However, when she took the time to communicate and really ask the child what was it that they wanted to do, then it was clear that he said he wanted to work at a hospital and to wear a white coat. And by gosh, we can help the child to accomplish and get to that end. That's so awesome. <laughs> it is. It, it really is. So, um, so that's it's a, a wonderful thing. Yes, it's a great example of including your child and, Absolutely. and finding their strengths and weaknesses. Now, what kinds of goals are in the IEPs? In the IEPs, everybody's goal would be different because like the I in IEP stands for individual, it's really to meet those individual needs of the particular student. Okay, great. We are going to take a break. I'm Julie Ames, the host of the Special Needs Family Hour. We will join you on the other side to discuss what exactly happens in an IEP meeting. Missed any part of today's show? You can obtain the podcast on our website, specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Welcome back. This is Julie Ames of the Special Needs Family Hour. I'm here with Claudia Roberts, a parent advocate, and Denise Provenzano with the Hillsborough County School District. We are discussing the individual education plan. Um, what ha- exactly happens at an IEP meeting? Well, I think Denise did an excellent job of explaining the how an IEP is developed. So in that meeting, what happens is that same group of people that Denise said were part of the IEP team come together to develop that plan. And that plan flows through that same process, starting with how the student is doing now, where we want them to be in a year, those are the goals, what services do they need to get there, and then ultimately, where will those services be delivered? So for me as a parent, once I understood that there was that flow to it, then I felt like I could follow along and participate. Yes. Did you want to add anything to that, Denise? Um, No, I think you're absolutely correct. There is a process, and if we follow this process, it will hopefully guide us towards a well-written IEP that will pass the stranger test for all individuals, one that is easy to implement and for data to be collected on. Yes. One of the things I like now about going to my IEP meetings is usually the IEP is projected, and everyone can read it at the same time, make modifications, and you're able to discuss everything about the IEP with everyone in the room. So that's one of the great things of technology 
that has allowed us that ability. Well, and briefly, too, if, if, if often school districts will have a draft, and if you can ask for that and if you can read it ahead of time, it gives you a chance to think about it and prepare your questions so that you kind of flow smoothly through that process. Or often you can also use your IP from the previous year as a draft and kind of know what concerns you have and what places that you think the student didn't meet their goals or did meet their goals, and you can kind of follow that same outline. Yes. Now, Denise, what can make the journey easier? Well, that's an easy question. Be involved. Be an active member of the team. Get to know your students or your child's teachers. Ask questions. If you're not clear on something, be sure to ask questions. Always keep the student first. If everyone on that IEP team will keep the student's best interest first, um, we'll have success. We need to remember that communication is the key, that together we're stronger, we're better, and as a team we can do just about anything. So making the journey easier, I think if I had to sum it up in one word, would just be be involved. Yes. How about you, Claudia? Could you add anything to that? I think involvement is key and, and being involved constantly. Sometimes we feel like because, because an IEP has to be developed once a year that we only think about this once a year, but that's based on constant data that we get. Report cards, progress reports, how's the student doing? You know, you can call an IEP meeting at any time if you need an update or a meeting. Also, for me, I think bringing support. When my children had IEPs, my husband always came. We always tried to go yes. together. So you can bring a friend, you can bring a neighbor, you can bring your minister, you know, whoever will provide you support in an IEP meeting if you feel nervous. Absolutely. When things come up, I know that I refer to my IEP when I'm looking at the goals and I'm wondering, are my girls meeting their goals? The first thing I go back to is, what exactly are the goals and what are my expectations for that teacher in the classroom? Did you want to add to that, Denise? Well, I do agree. And if you remember when I talked about goals and objectives, that they should be written in the SMART format. Absolutely. They should be specific, measurable, obtainable, realistic. When you keep all of those things in mind, hopefully um, things you know will be more clear. Also, feel free to contact the student's case manager, like Claudia was saying. Got to have that communication. If you have a question, you don't understand something, question so that everything is clear and we're all on the same page. Yes. Claudia, is it possible to bring anyone to the IEP meeting? Yes, the IEP should be a collaborative process. Um, there are two new laws in Florida that kind of assist with that process, which say that you can bring support. You can bring, again, you know, family member, spouse. A spouse would be included anyway, typically if they're the parent, but, you know, an advocate, somebody like me. You can also bring a professional. If, if you're concerned about occupational therapy, you can bring your occupational therapist. As a courtesy, I always let the school district know that I'm bringing somebody because yes. I think it's important and it's just a nice thing to do. Um, but that new law also requires that teams collaborate. And I find that they like that, that the speech therapist at school likes to talk to the speech therapist at home so that they're on the same page and support each other. So, you know, a lot of families have private therapists. It's really important that we utilize all of them as a team because that's the point of the IEP is for us to all work as a team for that child. Yes, I have a reading tutor for the girls and I always like her, my reading tutor, to be able to communicate with the teachers and I always give the teachers permission to talk to her. So I have no problem with us collaborating together. Did you want to add to that, Denise? Yes. When Claudia was talking about the Florida statutes, it deals with Senate Bill 1108. And in that bill, it states that parents of public school students may be accompanied by another adult of their choice at any meeting with school district personnel. School district personnel may not object to the attendance of such adult or discourage or attempt to discourage parents from inviting another person of their choice to attend any meeting. 
So now in the district, when you go to your next IEP meeting, if you haven't already had the opportunity to see this, but parents and school district personnel attending the meeting shall now sign a document at the meeting's conclusion which states whether any school district personnel have prohibited, discouraged, or attempted to discourage parents from inviting a person of their choice to the meeting. That's wonderful. Now, I have another question on a different tangent. Do private schools have IEPs? Private schools, well, IDEA does not apply to private schools. Private schools are not covered under IDEA, the special education law. Children who attend public schools are entitled to a free and appropriate education and an IEP, and they receive funding from the federal government. Private schools do not receive this funding and are not required to provide a free and appropriate public education or an IEP to their students. So they're not required to provide special education services to students with disabilities. What you will find is that some private nonprofit schools often have either support plans or services plans. Many parochial and private schools often develop a support plan for their students, and the support plan will indicate the particular accommodations needed uh, to be able to meet the needs of their student with disabilities uh, at their site. Also, services plans describe the special education services that the district will provide, which is typically speech and language support to each parentally placed student with a disability enrolled in a nonprofit school, but this request for service must be parentally driven. Yes. Also, um, charter, it's important. To, I didn't know this when I moved to Florida because yes. well, there's so many charter schools. The charter schools are public schools for purposes of what all we're talking about. Correct. So where Denise said that a public school has to provide a free and appropriate public education, that's also true for charters. Got it. Absolutely. Now, a private school can receive, maybe we don't want to get into McKay scholarships, and that's a topic for another school, but because a private school assesses a McKay scholarship, they don't have to follow the individual education plan. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Because I've had friends who have gone to schools and they've kind of felt like at different times, maybe things weren't followed as they expected. And I don't think they realize the implications of their choices. Well, that's why it's good to maybe take that IEP from the public school and go to the private and say, is this, do you think this is a good fit? Yes. You know, and, f- and find out how they're not going to implement the IEP. I'm impressed with schools that really look to that IEP and want to try to follow that as closely as possible. That's when I think it's a good fit. Yes. Well, I just wanted to thank Denise and Claudia for being here today. I appreciate you coming and giving up your time and helping our listeners understand the individual education process. And I so appreciate all that you do to help families. And Denise, all that you do to teach and educate. I have been at Denise's trainings, and they're amazing. And Claudia, Claudia is a friend of mine, and she is a wonderful parent advocate. So we're very blessed to have both these ladies on the show today. Thank you both. Thank Thank you you for having us. I'm Julie Ames with the Special Needs Family Hour. We'll be back on the other side to discuss organizing for your special needs child. To find out more or to contact Julie Ames, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to SpecialNeedsFamilyHour.com. That's SpecialNeedsFamilyHour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with me, Julie Ames. Thank you for being here today. The most important thing, well, not the most important thing, but when you have a special needs child, it is extremely important that you are organized. 
As a primary caregiver, you will be handling many educational, legal, and medical papers. At this time, I'm going to go over several things that will help you with your everyday life. For me, the most central thing for my family is the family calendar. My family calendar happens to be a daytimer, eight and a half by 11 calendar, and it goes on the refrigerator, unless it's with me, and it is color-coded. And I found that color-coded was the easiest way to go. And I have one of those old-fashioned pens with the four different colors, and people always comment when I pull it out, but it is effective. So black is for my husband and myself, our planning. Green is my youngest daughter because she's at a separate school. And blue are for my oldest two daughters, Maria and Christina. And the blue is for their doctor's appointments, their school, everything related to them. Then red, red is used for holidays and early pickups, so I don't forget, and of course birthdays. And then red is also used to denote their emergencies. So if Christina's having seizures, I need to keep track of her seizures. So when I see her neurologist quarterly, I'm able to pull out my calendar and show him what kind of the, what the last quarter, the last three months has been like with Christina. And I also keep track of missed days and any other emergency-related incidences. Now, the other thing about the calendar is the very last page has a place for important telephone numbers. So we have the fire number and the police number. And it's important that you also have a non-emergency number for the police in case there's something that's questionable, but you don't necessarily need them to come to your house. And then I also always include the poison center control number. And that number... I, it's 1-800-222-1222. That's an important number. I've only had to call it once, and they do ask for your address. Um, my, I had a Galileo calendar that my daughters um, broke, and I called them, and they asked for my address. And after I gave it to them, I found myself asking, is a hazmat team coming over now? And she laughed. She said, no, it's just alcohol. And that's why your paint just stripped off your table. So they will ask for your address. So that is the calendar. And on that, I also include important numbers for the kids, the grandmother, um, granddad, anyone that they, is related to them. And also for the babysitter, that calendar, I'm able to show the babysitter and say, this is who we are, you know, like the house you're at, the address, the phone number, because I don't want to sit her calling emergency uh, ambulance or police and them not knowing where they are located. Of course, now we have phone numbers that I can track. The other important document that I have, and I also keep this on the refrigerator, is my husband said, if something happens to you, how do I know what to do? So I actually have a spreadsheet, and you can create any system you want. I have an Excel spreadsheet, and it's important information. And again, on this one, I do have Poison Center at the top. But then I also have doctors, and on it I list the specialty, asthma, dentist, dermatologist, ENT, endocrinologist, immunology, neurology, ophthalmologist. I have all that listed. And then I have the name of the doctor, and then four, and I use our initials for Maria, Christina, Anna, myself, how often, and for the asthma, is as needed. If it's immunology, it's um, once a year. I also include why the phone number, the fax number, and the address. I also include on another section of pharmacy and all the medications. 
I have down a section, a separate section for therapists, x-ray, and then their school information. And then, of course, we include our dog, Lady. <laughs> if anything happened to me, I'd want my husband to be able to take care of her. So we have all of Lady's important phone numbers, the veterinarian, her food, her boarding, and all of those wonderful things. So that's just a preview of how you can keep track of your family life. And I've got great news. We're going to have a two-parter. We're going to have um, Jay Hemnes of the Emma Hemnes Law Firm. And Jay is going to be discussing guardianship. He is an attorney at law, and he's actually my attorney for our children. So we look forward to seeing you next Sunday from 1 to 2. Thank you for listening to the Special Needs Family Hour. If you've missed any part of today's program, you can get the podcast of this and every show at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. While there, please take advantage of the resources we've made available. And if you're so inclined, please support the advertisers that support this program. More than anything, just know that you are not alone. And we invite you to join us next Sunday at 1 for the Special Needs Family Hour, only on AM 860. The Answer. The Answer.